Hi, this is Brennan Spiegel, co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, and I am pleased to be with Dr. Ali Rezai, who is the medical director of the GI Motility Program at Cedars-Sinai. Dr. Rezai, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. So today we're going to talk about a new paper in the Red Journal entitled Lactulose Breath Testing as a Predictor of Response to Rifaximin in patients with IBS with diarrhea. And, you know, we know that IBS is treated in many different ways, and there are a lot of different therapies available. Some are more effective than others. And certainly one treatment that was developed in large part by the motility group at Cedars-Sinai is Rifaximin. And we know that Rifaximin works uh, not for everyone, like all IBS treatments. No treatment works for everyone. IBS is a heterogeneous condition, but rifaximin certainly works in a subgroup of patients with IBS. So the question is, in whom does rifaximin work the best? And one question is whether lactulose breath testing might be a biomarker to help determine in advance who's going to respond or maybe who isn't going to respond. So that's sort of the basis of this paper. So before we get too far into it, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about rifaximin and how do we even think it works? What is its mechanism of action and what do we know about the effectiveness and potential MOA of rifaximin? Rifaximin is an antibiotic that is considered poorly absorbed. What that means that 99.6% of rifaximin remains in the gut and does not get absorbed. And the main segment that rifaximin is active is in the small bowel rather than the colon. One interesting thing about uh, rifaximin was that multiple studies have tried to see, well, IBS patients are responding to rifaximin, uh, at least a subpopulation of them. So what changes does rifaximin exert in the stool microbiome? And surprisingly, multiple groups have shown that the amount of changes that we see in the stool microbiome exerted by rifaximin is minimal. And that made us think that, okay, there are multiple possibilities. One is that rifaximin is working through a non-antibiotic pathway. The other possibility was that rifaximin is working only on small bowel microbiome that is not represented significantly in the stool microbiome, as the majority of the stool microbiome constitutes of the colonic microbiome. So this study indirectly tried to address that question, whether, for example, the small bowel microbiome can potentially be the way that rifaximin works So rifaximin, again, in terms of side effects, because it's poorly absorbed, is generally considered safe. As our audience know, it's been approved already in traveler's diarrhea and also hepatic encephalopathy, and most recently in 2015 for IBS diarrhea. The side effects that have been associated with it is risk of C. diff is 1 in 3,000 roughly to uh, 3,200 patients in target 1, target 2, and target 3 patients who were exposed to rifaximin. Target 1, 2, and 3 were the FDA trials, right, that were used to um, validate rifaximin? Yeah, correct. And the risk, although it's low, but it's uh, one patient in target three trial, uh, even though it was in the observation phase, and also was being treated with another antibiotic for urinary tract infection, developed CDF. So we 
as all patients in that trial received rifaximin, we can't really rule out the causality. And beyond that, 2% of patients who received rifaximin developed nausea, and also there was a signature of elevation of liver enzymes that was seen in target 3, which was about 2% as compared to 1% of placebo. That's those are the uh, side effects that were shown to be above 2% uh, cutoff. But generally, as we anecdotally use it in clinical practice, it's well tolerated and not many uh, side effects associated uh, with it. In terms of efficacy, it has been assessed in IBS diarrhea in target 3 trial, and also IBS diarrhea and IBS mixed type in target 1 and target 2 trials, and it has been shown to be superior to a placebo. As you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, it does not work in all patients, and that's the rule of thumb in all our IBS patients, that we try to find a medication that works the best for that patient. And unfortunately, we don't have many determinants of response to predict whether a patient responds to therapy or not. And that was the second aim of this paper, to see if, for example, lactulose breath testing is helping to determine who responds better to rifaximin. Because at the end of the day, this is a very common disease. Unless we find determinants of response, it's, it's very hard to justify empiric therapy in IBS patients as we move along and therapies are getting more and more expensive. We need a way to tailor, to tailor the management of IBS patients to first maximize the symptom improvement and secondly to decrease the direct and indirect healthcare costs. So in the original target studies, at least the original New England Journal paper, and, and generally the way we practice in the clinic is that most people don't routinely measure lactulose hydrogen breath tests before prescribing rifaximin. Some listeners might, but in the original study that was not required in order to be included in the trial. So now what we're looking at is, okay, so what if we were to measure lactulose hydrogen breath tests at baseline to help determine whether or not to use rifaximin? So if I understand this study that we're talking about today uh, is part of the target three. Is that right? Is this, a, is this part of that target three study, kind of a sub-analysis? Correct. This is a sub-analysis of target three trial. And 13 centers did perform lactulose breath testing on patients that they recruited for target three trial. Okay. Now, just very briefly, I know we can have a whole separate podcast on this, but there's different ways to conduct hydrogen breath tests here, lactulose hydrogen breath tests, and I know you have written an entire recommendation document, the North American Guidance document that was published in the American Journal a year or two ago. So maybe just briefly talk about how it was measured in this study and why you selected that approach to measurement. So this study, initially all patients undergo a bland diet, if you will, on the day before the test, and that is to decrease the amount of fermentation inside the small bowel. And also, patients were not supposed to take any promotility drugs, any probiotics, narcotics, or drugs that affect the motility of the gut. And patients were at least 24 days off of those medications. And that's also the approach that, that I take anecdotally for breath testing that I do at, in my clinic, just to make sure that I decrease the chance of false positivity in, in the uh, test. Overnight, they fast. 
for about 8 to 12 hours, again, to decrease the amount of fermentation in the biobacteria. And on the day of breath testing, first we measure the, the breath sample for methane, hydrogen, and carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is essentially for adjusting for the alveolar gas, because whenever we give a breath test, that's obviously, it's not purely made out of uh, alveolar gas, but so we can adjust it based on the CO2 content. So the hydrogen and methane that is in our breath is exclusively produced by the gut microbiota. And we don't say many times exclusive biomarkers in medicine, and this is one of the few times that we know that the hydrogen and methane that is in our exabretus is purely from gut microbiota. And then patient receives a sugar substrate that can be glucose or lactulose. Sugar substrate passes through the small bowel, gets fermented by the uh, gut microbiome, and gut microbiome produces hydrogen and methane, and that binds its way to circulation and from there to the lungs, and we exhale it and we pick it up on the gas chromatographers. So what happens is that every 15 minutes after the baseline measurements and after consumption of the sugar substrate, we check the hydrogen and methane. For example, if the amount of hydrogen in the breath increases by more than 20 parts per million from the baseline, then within the first 90 minutes of the test, we consider that test to be positive. That number for a methane is more than 10 parts per million. So the same technique was used in these patients, except that these patients underwent a centralized approach for breath testing. And these are done through tubes, so patients exhale into small tubes, and the tubes are sent to a centralized lab for measurement of hydrogen, methane, and carbon dioxide in the breath. The advantage of this approach is that all gases are measured centrally, and that takes away the inter-machine variability that sometimes we see between gas chromatographers. And number two is that we could keep the investigators and also patients blinded from the results of the study until the study is unblinded at the end. It has also a disadvantage that sometimes the samples that are taken may not be perfect and there might be too much contamination with uh, room air. In that case, the sample may not be good. And by the time that you're measuring it, it's too late to get that sample as opposed to testing in the office. But that's one shortcoming of doing centralized breath testing. And that's essentially what we did in this study. Although the American Consensus Guidelines came after this study, we went back and reanalyzed the results of this study with the current guidelines for it to be up-to-date to be published for this paper. Okay, so speaking of results, what was the main result? What did you find? The main result is actually pretty straightforward. 93 patients were included in this study. Of these, about 48% responded to rifaximin, which is in line with target three trial that patients responded to rifaximin. As you mentioned at the beginning, not everybody responds to rifaximin. The interesting thing is that if the baseline lactulose breath test was positive, 60% of patients responded as opposed to 26% of patients if the baseline lactulose breath test was negative. That's an odds ratio of about 4.3. So essentially, if you look at the number needed to treat 
of IBS diarrhea patients to rifaximin, which is about 10. Now, if you implement lactulose breath testing, you can push that to a number needed to treat of three, uh, which is a great improvement in terms of maximizing a symptom response in patients that we have and also a tailored approach to our patients. So you're really saying that if mm-hmm. you conduct lactulose hydrogen breath testing and just select the people who are positive, you're really enriching the sample to a group that's much more likely by a factor of about four to respond to rifaximin. And the number needed right. to treat falls from the sort of 10-11 range for all comers down to, did you say about two to three for those who have right. a positive breath test? Correct. Okay. So suggesting that this is a biomarker that could be used to predict response to rifaximin. Yeah, absolutely. That was our main point to see if we can find a biomarker to find response to therapy. Interesting enough, in this study, we did try to find if we can find other determinants of response to therapy, but lactulose breath test was the only one that showed up as positive with statistically significant results. So in our last few minutes here for this podcast, I really want to circle back to the clinical implications of this for our listeners who may already be using rifaximin in their clinical practice and have noticed that it works sometimes, but it doesn't work other times, and are now listening to this thinking about, well, should I start doing routine lactulose hydrogen breath testing in my clinic before I prescribe rifaximin? What would you advise our listeners about whether they should be doing this in their practice? You know, decision-making in medicine should be propelled by the physician and clinical judgment upon all the cumulative assessment of all the objective and subjective data that we have. And no test is perfect, and lactulose breath test is not an exception. And I think in this scenario, lactulose breath test can definitely provide valuable data in terms of whether this patient would respond to therapy or this patient would not respond. And in clinical practice, that's very important because therapies for IBS, as we all know, they're not cheap and they're not necessarily accessible to all of our patients. So if we can find patients who respond to therapy more than the others, so we can try to tailor management and hopefully save some money both indirectly and directly in terms of healthcare costs. And in my opinion, that's the most important implication for clinical practice, at least in my practice, that's important for them. Of course, conducting the test itself is going to cost some money, but you're suggesting that if we conduct the test and not treat people, I assume, Mm -hmm. who have a negative test, or at least not initially, that hopefully that upfront cost of performing these tests will be offset by savings by just focusing the rifaximin use in those people who are most likely to benefit? Yeah, that's definitely what I'm uh, implying. And also, a lot of patients, when we are counseling them in terms of uh, the underlying pathophysiology of the disease, as you mentioned, it's a heterogeneous disease. So when patients have a a positive breath test and they do respond to uh, rifaximin, so this will also help them understand why they have the disease and also why they're responding to therapy which that reassurance that we give to patients so many times is the main part of a management of uh, IBS patients. That's right. So a related question then is, okay, so should they then retest the lactulose hydrogen breath test to see if it's normalized after a treatment period? What would you advise about that? 
In this study, we did also check for lactulose breath testing after therapy. By itself, post-therapy lactulose breath testing was not a determinant of uh, response, and this did not predict the response to therapy. But also, there was a trend towards the fact that if you had a positive lactulose breath test at the beginning, at baseline, and then you received rifaximin, and your breath test became negative after therapy, your response rate was about 75%, which was numerically higher than the 60% of all patients who had positive breath tests at a baseline. And we said that we didn't have enough power to show that a difference. So based on this study, at least, you may argue that it didn't have enough power. It does not appear that we need a post treatment lactulose breath testing to see if it's eradicated or not, and rather follow patients clinically for symptom response. So if a patient, just to play this out, has a positive breath test, you treat them with rifaximin, and mm-hmm. they respond. They have a good response. So you mm-hmm. decide, well, I don't really need to check the breath test again because I'm following them clinically, and they look better. But then they come back, let's say three months later, symptoms have returned. Would you test the hydrogen breath test at that point again or just use an empiric course of rifaximin, or how would you manage that situation? Anecdotally, I have to say that I don't repeat breath testing at that point because I already know that a, this is a patient that uh, has responded to rifaximin before and has had a positive lactulose breath test. So I would just empirically treat that patient to see if a patient responds again. Obviously, again, when we treat patients in clinical practice, there are multiple uh, other factors at play, whether in terms of insurance coverage and all, considering that everything is aligned, then I wouldn't check another lactulose breath testing and rather empirically treat the patient. Mm-hmm. Well, fascinating study and an important contribution that has a lot of clinical implications, I think, for our listeners who can now go back to the clinic and uh, make a decision about whether or not they want to start testing lactulose hydrobest tests more frequently uh, or even at all before starting rifaximin. So thank you for your contribution to the journal. Thank you for all you do in the motility program at Cedars-Sinai to advance the science of irritable bowel syndrome, motility disorders, and of the role of antibiotics and the microbiome and their treatment. So thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. So on behalf of my uh, co-editor, Dr. Brian Lacey, uh, it's my pleasure to have had Dr. Rezai with us today and look forward to seeing you next time on the podcast. <laughs>